are totally correct in thinking that the dulcet tones of Herb Alpert and the Tijuana Brass means it's time for another edition of Fangraph's audio. You're also correct in thinking that it's been a month since we met in this space. Hello, I'm Carson Sestouli, host of Fangraph's audio. On this particular edition of the podcast, I talk with stalwart contributors Dave Cameron and Joe Polakowski. We look broadly at the goings-on in baseball since the San Francisco Giants won the World Series in early November. Specifically, we discuss the nerdiest of the nerdy things, including price per win in some early contracts, Sean Smith, creator of the Shown Projection System, his choice to join a major league organization. We discuss the San Francisco Giants, Brian Sabian, and some of his curious moves thus far in the season. And we also look at the winter meetings and the parts that Cameron and Polakowski themselves might play. This rapture-inducing content, and much, much more on this edition of Fangraphs Audio. If I haven't already said it in the introduction, allow me to introduce myself, Carson Sestouli, and the Fangraphs Audio Podcast. Um, I might have also mentioned it in the the introduction that uh, we've been away for a while. Um, Of course, the season ended, uh, but we have brought back uh, some of our Star uh, Star Wars Stal- I'm just going to say stalwart. How about uh, guests? Um, you'll know one of them as the full-time employee of Fangraphs.com. He's uh, from the American South, or at least living currently in the American South. His name is Dave Cameron. Dave, how are you? Good. How are you guys? Uh, super. Well, and then the other guy you're talking about, of course, is uh, is uh, one of our beloved polls uh, from the city of New York. His name's Joe Polakowski. Joe, how are you? A Derek Jeterless day is a good day, right, Derek? <laughs> Derek, and of course, uh, one of the things that Joe Paul is referring to here is the fact that he co-hosts. Uh, now, uh, who do you co-host with? With Quebec and Exisa? No, just just Mike Exisa. All right, just Mike Exisa, the uh, River Ave Blues podcast, which I'm led to believe is now a five day a week uh, enterprise. Is that right? It is. It'll take one of the you know those Daily Show esque winter breaks at some point, but yeah, it's a it's a daily. Okay, right. Um, yeah, well, uh, and, and uh, I understand that you managed to avoid uh, Derek Jeter almost entirely today. Oh, we did, because, well, there's nothing really going on at all, and, you know, we're not going to try to dig stuff up on Derek Jeter when there's nothing there, because, you know, there's plenty there otherwise. Right, okay. Yes, there is plenty there otherwise, and, and uh, Jeter might be one of the topics uh, that we that we cover today. In fact, uh, because it's been a month since we visited each other um, in this electronic space, um you know, it makes sense to maybe ask, um, you know, now that the uh, Giants are the World Series champions, uh, and a month has gone by, and, of course, some things have gone on in terms of, uh, you know, question of free agency, uh, players becoming free agents, maybe a couple minor trades. What is the biggest story of the off season thus far? And uh, we can ask that question, and, and perhaps you guys have some answers. Uh, but let's, go, let's start with uh, Dave Cameron. Dave, if I were to ask you, what is the... Biggest story of the off season since the uh, since the World Series concluded. What would you say and why? Uh, I'd probably go with the uh, inflation in player salaries that we've seen to date. It might not continue. Maybe uh, you know a lot of times the early contracts end up being more than some of the later contracts. So perhaps it'll even out. But so far, I think we've seen a pretty significant hike in player prices over what we've seen the last couple of years. 
which to me is interesting because the economy is still terrible, and uh, in, the Major League Baseball teams are are spending more freely than they have the last couple of years on marginal talents. I mean, Jeff Blum gets a two-year deal. Joaquin Benoit, who's a good reliever, gets a three-year contract. You know, John Buck gets a three-year deal. The Troy Tolitsky extension. Uh, Miguel Tejada, coming off one of the worst years of his career, got a raise. Uh, it's just very interesting to me that teams are uh, exercising a little less financial restraint than they have the last couple of years when, you know, globally the economy is not doing any better than it was <laughs> in the time that caused the pullback in the first place. Now, uh, I think, uh, if I'm not mistaken, last year a win was worth about $4 million. What is it looking like a win uh, is worth now? Right now, based on prices, and, you know, we're doing a small sample of 10 to 15 free agent signings, and the, er- the early ones are going to come with some selection uh, bias issues, but right now it's almost $5 million a win. Uh, you know, part of that is because of deals for guys like Victor Martinez, who it looks like is going to be used as a DH instead of a catcher, which significantly affects his uh, potential production. Um, and then, you know, relievers who generally are not nearly as good as they're paid, guys like Joaquin Benoit, who've already signed, they're pushing that up to an extent. So not everyone is signing for $5 million to win, but it definitely looks like there's an increase over last year. Uh, I think with uh, is a great example of coming off a 2.8 win season last year as a 35-year-old, he got $6 million. Coming off a 1.3 win season as a 36-year-old, he got $7 million. So uh, I think there's uh, pretty obvious inflation so far in the first month of free agency. Now, you, you mentioned briefly there that th- this might be uh, merely a function of it being early in the free agent season. Uh, I do vaguely remember, although not entirely, that something like this happened last year where there were some early contracts. I think maybe the Brandon Lyon contract uh, happened sort of in the in the late fall. Uh, first of all, is that true about Brandon Lyon? Second of all, is this is there something about the this sort of early free agent season which might um, spur teams to make deals and overpay? Well, I think the deal last year that maybe got people thinking that there was going to be a bounce in the market was the Placido Polanco contract. I think he got three years and $18 million, uh in order to play third base, which people thought was uh, an overpay and probably has turned out to be correctly so. Um, but then all of the other infielders kind of got lesser deals than that. We saw Marco Scudero settle for 212 after that, and um, the Polanco deal didn't set the market as much as it turned out to be an aberration. And it's possible some of these deals could turn out to be the same. Uh, I think what we're seeing is either a combination, it could just be inflation, where prices are going to be legitimately higher all winter, or we could just be seeing that the teams who have money are being aggressive with the money that they have. A team like Detroit, who went after Brandon Inge, Johnny Peralta, Victor Martinez, and Joaquin Benoit, identifying guys they want, figuring out how much money they have, and not necessarily bidding against the market, but just spending what it will take to get the guys they want. And now they might sit out most of the rest of the winter, driving prices down. So... Uh, it's going to be, we're going to have to watch and see whether, which effect it really is, uh, it, or it could be some combination of the two. But for me, that's the interesting story so far, is to try and figure out if we're actually seeing inflation in player salaries that's going to continue going forward, or if we're just seeing teams like the Tigers driving up early season prices. Okay, now Joe Paul, to you, uh, I, you can choose your own adventure here. One, uh, you can either continue th- this discussion of uh, you know free agent uh, and their and their costs, or if you would like to submit uh, for our consideration another thing which you know you sort of think is the story of the off season, uh, you can also feel free to do that. Yeah, I'll I'll go with I'll continue with Dave's talk because I think it is really an important point um, because you know the, the stars are always going to get paid. You're always going to you know Cliff Lee, no matter what the market was, he was still going to get a huge contract. You know Jason Worth and, and Carl Crawford, 
maybe the market will affect them at the margins, but they're still going to get really, you know, long-term, high-money deals. You know, regardless of the of the of the market, we saw what we saw in the players Dave was talking about. All the middling players who, you know, last winter got screwed. Uh, I like to look at Juan Uribe as a really good example of this. Uh, you could argue that in two, Juan Uribe had a better year in 2009 than he did in 2010. You know, his wins above replacement were better in 2010 because he played more. You know, he had more he had more plate appearances. But in 2009, all of his rate stats were better. And, and what does he get for his 2009 performance? A one-year, $3.5 million deal. What does he get for his 2010 performance? You know, he gets a, a long-term deal. He gets paid seven million bucks a year. Uh, so that's to me that says that the middling contracts, the guys who you know were getting the big money in the mid 2000s, are back to getting bigger money now. Uh, it, and you know, Dave's right; it might stop, but I, I don't see any indication of it. You know, we, Uribe just signed last week, and we're seeing this kind of thing almost all the time with these guys getting, uh, you know, getting bigger money than we all expected to. Uh, and if you don't mind me prattle on, prattling on for another second. Oh, yeah, prattle, prattle. Uh, I really, I really wonder how this is going to affect Chad Qualls. Uh, it was, and that's, very- I think that's the question that's on the lips of every American. <laughs> what will happen with the Chad <laughs> Qualls deal? Four, he made four million dollars last year and had, I mean, there was nothing to, to turn around how bad a season he had. You know, he was a little bit better with Tampa, uh, but he still had an overall bad season. And Tampa offered him arbitration and he declined. Now, Who's going to give Chad Qualls more than $4 million a season? Well, he saw what Joaquin Benoit got and said, well, you know, maybe I won't get more than $4 million a season, but I could probably get more than $4 million guaranteed. I think he's wrong, but given the market, I'm not too sure in that uh, assertion. Yeah, I, I would suggest that there's a, there's a pretty good chance that he had reached a backhand deal with the Rays to decline arbitration yeah, before they I offered. Was thinking that too, I was thinking that, too, but, you know, with... We saw that with Vasquez and the Yankees, and that came out right afterwards that he was going to decline. You know, there was the the day they offered him, he basically said, "I'm going to decline." Uh, so why? You know, the only question then is, did did Friedman say, you know, we're going to we're a gentleman's agreement, just keep it quiet? Or oh yeah, well I, I think the the Yankees are kind of like uh, the leakiest organization in baseball. I think uh, we generally know what Brian Cashman has for lunch. Well, you, uh, mean, you, mean or... Randy, you mean Randy Levine is the leakiest person in baseball? <laughs> okay, well, right. There, there are uh, media accessible people in the Yankees yeah. organization who are happy to share information. Where in Tampa Bay, uh, trying to find out the name of their team can be a challenge at times. They don't talk to anyone, and so uh, I, I don't know that I would go off the fact that we didn't hear about it. When you look at guys like Brad Hop, I mean, it would make no sense for yeah. him to decline arbitration. Uh, Qualls, I agree with you. There's no way he's going to get more than $4 million guaranteed. I think that we have to assume there was definitely some kind of backhand deal to get the Rays a pick. Otherwise, these decisions just don't make any sense. Now, I said, especially Hop. I don't understand how Hop could possibly decline arm. It has to be the same thing. We had reached a, a predetermined agreement for them to not accept. No, wait, does that mean that, like, for example, that, that they will then sign Brad Hop? Or that now no. that they will then sign Chad Qualls? No, it's that they will, those players will now sign elsewhere and the Tampa Bay Rays will get compensated for their loss with a top 50 draft pick next summer. Right, but so what's the advantage to the player? There, there's no harm to the player. The, the player agrees to do it as like an act of good faith because it doesn't hurt them. As a type B free agent, their signing team is not going to be forfeiting a pick, it's just going to be a new pick added to the draft. So it doesn't hurt their value at all and it helps their former team. No, but the case of, of Chad Qualls, uh, was, I mean, was he a type A or type B free agent? Type, type B. Yeah, okay, so, so what is, uh, but is he really going to be able to get $4 million in the open market? No, but, but they wouldn't have offered him arbitration had he not agreed to decline. Uh, so to him, it doesn't make a difference. They weren't going to offer him arbitration if he was going to accept. 
Right, because we would assume that Chad Qualls, who did have, at least on the face of it, a terrible season, would accept arbitration yeah. in the uh, real world. Correct. If there was not a backdoor deal, he would have absolutely accepted arbitration. Right. Uh, one other thing uh, I wanted to ask about. You were t- talking about uh, organizational secrecy versus versus not uh, Yankees versus D Rays in this, or sorry, Rays in this particular case, Cameron. Um, a, a, a curious thing that happened uh, within the last couple of days here is uh, to uh, a member of the uh, the sabermetric community. Um, Sean Smith, who uh, produces the Sean or the Chone uh, projections, however you want to pronounce it, uh, recently posted on his uh, on his website baseballprojection.com uh, that he will not be producing the Chone projections for 2011 season. Uh, that it's because he's been hired by a baseball organization, and that you shouldn't ask him any more questions about it because he's not at liberty to say. Um, I know that there was some speculation going on at. Uh, Inside the book, uh, the inside the book blog about why uh, an organization might opt to um, to ask Sean, uh, Sean Smith to be secretive about it. Um, of course, there, you know there are a lot of guys who do numbers out there, and we know that they are affiliated with certain organizations. Tango, we know for example, uh, was affiliated with Seattle at one point. Maybe some other teams. I'm wondering, in, in your opinion, I'll ask both of you this, Cameron first. Uh, what is the sort of organizational or the sort of competitive advantage gained by not naming the uh, organization involved? Well, I think uh, Sean actually uh, admitted that he was a contractor. He was not actually employed by a major team. He was keeping a full-time job, and this is going to be contract work as a side position. And I think in a lot of cases, uh, major league teams don't disclose those things. Uh, you know, I know people who have done contract work for teams that no one has ever known about because there's no real reason for the team to disclose, hey, we hired this guy to do some independent contracting. Uh, usually if they're going to hire someone like, you know, Bill James of the Red Sox or, or they're getting an actual front office position, that's the kind of thing that they'll announce publicly because they're going to put them in an office. They're going to be seen around the organization. It's the kind of thing you can't keep secret in the first place, so they might as well just be up front with it. On a contract position like what Sean's on, I don't know that there's actually – I wouldn't say that there's a, a competitive advantage to keeping a secret, but there's no incentive for them to make it public either. I, I don't know why any team would say, hey, we've hired Sean Smith to do work for us. Uh, I don't think that helps them, and considering that he's going to be a contract employee who's not going to work in their office, uh, they can fairly easily keep it a secret. Yeah, and uh, now, but one thing we can assume, I'm sure, and of course I'm not really trying to dig deep here, though, is that it seems as though at some level projection work will be part of it. Uh, can we assume that because the Chum projections won't be available? Oh, yeah. I mean, I would assume that he got hired based on the strength of the, how those projections have done, and the team is going to want him. They've essentially made that their own intellectual property. So they've taken his projections and made them in-house projections, uh, or they're going to have him improve them for uh, their own uses. But I would say that the, the fact that he's taking them offline shows that that's the kind of work he's going to be doing for their team, which is totally understandable given that his uh, exhibited skill set. Right. Joe, Paul, do do you see the the sort of competitive advantage for a team not admitting it? I mean, because this isn't just a case where he wasn't going to be producing them, but this particular case he said, if you ask me, I can't tell you. Um, I mean, do you see the advantage there for an organization? Is it similar to what Dave said or anything to add? It is because, as Dave said, I agree, it's contract work. The idea with contract work is is not perpetual. It will end at some point. Uh, so when he, you know, teams probably don't want, you know, to know. I mean, perhaps when the contract does end, Sean will come back and re, you know start producing his shown project shown projections, uh, you know, for public consumption as he has done before. And I can assume, you know, that it 
I don't think a team would say, all right, we're going to hire you, and then even after we part ways, that you can't use any of your old projection systems anymore. Now, I can't see, I don't want to know why Sean would agree to that. Uh, so if he does, in fact, come back and start producing projections as he did before, I'm sure the team does, the team that hired him doesn't want to, anyone to know that, yeah, this guy worked for us. Now, okay, here's a question, too. I, I was uh, listening recently to, um, I guess it was it was a, an interview um, by uh, Jesse Thorne of Sounds of Young America with Bill James. Um, and I should mention that this is uh, this is what we call a plug, that in fact uh, my next guest on the Fangraphs Audio podcast will be the self-same Jesse Thorne of Sounds of Young America. And I'll ask him about the Bill James podcast, among other things. Um, but one of the cool questions I thought Jesse asked... Um, Bill James was, you know, what have you learned or, you know, have you learned anything in particular um, being inside of an organization um, that you, you know, just uh, sort of information you wouldn't have had access to uh, outside, you know, working as a as an individual or, you know, a third-party company. Um, and I'm curious, and I'd like you both to speculate, and we'll start with you, Joe Paul, what sort of things might Sean Smith learn or what sort of things would might a stats oriented person learn about inside an organization that just isn't possible outside of it uh, yeah Joe Paul well for starters we can we can actually point to Keith Law uh, for this immediately uh, because you know JP Richardi snapped him up from baseball prospectus and you know he got he was basically ingrained in the organization and I guess he, you know his biggest skill learned there was scouting which is you know something I think a lot of us do on an amateur basis but we can't say with any authority you know, a lot of us can see, oh, this guy's wrists aren't fast or something like that, and we can pretend to play scout. Uh, and those of us with trained eyes might be able to have some, I don't know, base-level insights. Uh, but being around the organization, being trained in that is something that not everyone has access to. Uh, so that's, that's a big plus uh, as far as things that, you know, we, cu- we can't possibly know sitting on our couches and watching every game. Uh, you know, and then there's, you know, the decision process that uh, that that goes through an organization. You know, maybe if you maybe if you worked in Ed Wade's front office, you'd be able to decipher some of the moves he makes. I'm not saying you can, but that's possible. There would be a logic, at least some kind of logic. I'm not saying there's a logic. I'd say maybe you'd be able to decipher it. Do you think that he uses maybe just a magic eight ball to make any of his decisions? Well, I mean, some of them worked out. Brandon Lyon worked out okay for at least the first year. Right. Yeah, we'll, we'll see year two. Uh, Cameron, what's the <laughs> yeah. what, what's the what the access uh, you know to a front office like James has or like some other stats guys have had? What what sort of perspectives could that possibly add that we just don't have? Um, sort of, we're not privy to sitting on the outside. Yeah, I think one of the things that uh, is interesting is the access to information that could help with projecting the development paths of certain types of minor league players. Uh, I think one one of the things we look at right now is when we say, okay prospects are risky, a lot of them get hurt, they just never develop for whatever reason, and so we lump a a standard aging curve or a standard risk uh, assessment on all minor league prospects, but once you get into an organization and you know why some of these guys didn't make it, like so-and-so had a really promising career, and then he stopped playing well when he had 17 children with 14 different groupies, or he got hooked on heroin, or he wrapped his tree around a car and we didn't tell anyone they had a broken arm for three months, or you know, some of these inside information things that are clearly going on and affect these players 
on and off the field that never become public. I think Sean might be able to look at some of these things and say, okay, I found a 20-year-old player who my projection system loves, but now I found out that he has a significant drinking problem. Is there a way I can now model that with other prospects <laughs> who I've talked to other scouts and other organizations and found here's the actual aging curve of alcoholic 19-year-olds. It's not as good. No, it might it might not be. Uh, although they might be more fun to hang out with, at least for a little while. <laughs> Possible. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, that's that's all interesting. Um, let's see. Looking at this. Uh, okay. A couple more things I want to talk about. One is you mentioned it briefly, Cameron. Let's talk about it. You know, a little bit more. The the Troy Tulowitzki signing. Um, the uh, the Rockies signed Troy Tulowitzki. I think it was to uh, 17 years, 350 million dollars. Do I have the terms correct? Uh, it's close. 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 Not no, too far uh, off. He signed essentially. He signed. Here, here are the the pertinent details. He is now Troy Tulowitzki of the Colorado Rockies is now signed through 2020, and the extension that he signed, I think, does not even become active till 2014. Is that correct? 2015. They had a club option for 2014 that they guaranteed as part of the deal, and then they added six more years on top. Okay, right. Now, uh, I know that uh, Tom Tango went through the numbers and found that, um, on average, this deal works out. But what's the, what's really the incentive for the Rockies to sign this deal you know, four or five years ahead of time? Uh, it, it's hard for me to, to, to grasp that exactly. Yeah, I mean, I, I like Tom. I will say this about the numbers that he ran, though. He had some very aggressive inflation rates. Uh, we, he basically assumed that the dollar per win was going to go up $500,000 a year every year into the future. Well, based on a, you know, four and a half, five million dollar win, that's 10% annual inflation for the first three or four years of that deal. I and mean, it's 11% now and then nine and a half percent. But it averages out to between the years that they would have had to find Tolitsky, it's about 10% per year. We haven't seen 10% annual inflation in baseball salaries in a long time. And I don't think we're going to see that going forward. I think that's, that's really high. And so, um, if the Rockies were working under an assumption of 10% inflation in order to come up with a $119 million figure, they either know the economy better than everyone else or they're being wildly optimistic about where baseball salaries are going. So. Okay, but the thing is, that's, that's also for a contract that doesn't even start till 2015. So, yes. uh, what if, uh, I mean, seriously, what happens if Troy Lewitsky gets shot in the, in the leg between now and then? Yeah. Right. I mean, what happens? Yeah, well, I mean, he's still under contract. I don't think he's going to insure for shooting. You can insure for some things, uh, but the size of this contract will actually make it very hard to take out insurance. I think what we have to look at it and say the Rockies are essentially, uh, use an analogy to a mortgage. Right now, home prices are very low and interest rates are very low. If you think that the home market is going to recover and you have a significant amount of money right now, it would actually make sense to buy a home that you weren't going to move into for four or five years to lock into these prices and interest rates. Um, but no one really knows what the home market's going to do in the next four or five years, which is why you don't see all of these rich people scooping up real estate left and right, because there's tremendous amounts of uncertainty uh, in the market. And I would say the same is true with Troy Tolitsky. He's a fantastic young player who should improve, but over the next four years, there's so many things that could happen to him that would make this not a good idea. But I think the Rockies took on an unnecessary amount of risk uh, based on the expectation that prices are going to go way up in the next four years, which no one can really know. Yeah, now Joe Paul, you you of course uh, write frequently about a team, the New York Yankees, that I suppose has the luxury of being able to um, to overpay, you know, especially for for players uh, who've played there. And this is a conversation that's going on with Derek Jeter, um, whose name we'll mention only obliquely in this particular case. 
Now, there are some other teams that can do that, that have done that, that pay, that overpay perhaps because they can and they, they target a guy that they really like. Are the Rockies really that kind of team that can do that? You know, and, and, or have they sort of made a mistake that could hamstring their organization? Well, I mean, it's it's been kind of chic to point back to their two other failed big contracts um, from last decade in Todd Helton and, and Mike Hampton. It's, well, it's wait, hard. Let's, let, lest we forget Denny Neagle, my friend. <laughs> yes, Denny Neagle. A contract that was signed within six well. days of the Hampton contract. <laughs> yes, uh, so it's easy to point. You know, they had, but you know, even even with those two contracts, they were able to compete uh, towards the end of the decade. So I, I'm not sure it would totally hamstring their their organization. Though I do think hamstring itself, pun pun, uh, <laughs> might be might be an issue with the contract. You know, the I, it's hard to think of Troy Tulowitzki, and you know, you think of his potential and you think about how good he's already been. We look at his injury history, though, and, you know, this year he got hit on the wrist and missed some time, but if you look back a little bit further in his injury history, he's missed a lot of time with lower body problems, mm-hmm. and I, I just, I don't understand how the Rockies can go make this deal. I guess, you know, it was, we have to make this deal now or we're going to lose him after 2014. Uh, I don't know, because the injury history, especially for a lower body injuries for an infielder, you know, I'm no injury expert, but that just, just screams red flag to me. Yeah, uh, yeah, and the uh, I know for me at least the lower body is a is a part that I personally care a lot about. Uh, I don't know if I'm the exception to the rule as far as that goes. Okay. Um, uh, finally, uh, the thing well I, uh, that I want to get to is uh, is to discuss briefly. Oh, actually, uh, two things. First, uh, we're talking about signings, of course, and uh, one team that's made a couple of signings this off season. And uh, we might uh, be at liberty to call them questionable signings. Is the San Francisco Giants? Uh, Giants. I think within the last week here, uh, they've signed, they've re-signed Pat Burrell. Um, the terms of which escape me, but I believe it was for merely a million dollars. And they've also signed Miguel Tejada, um, who is, um, at least in some countries, uh, eligible to collect Social Security. Uh, Cameron, you of course, and. Um, uh, you know, others like you. Not that there's anyone exactly like you. Have uh, criticized uh, Brian Sabian and his uh, roster construction, uh, his um, fondness for overpaying veterans. But he did win a World Series. Is this a is this a chance, uh, an opportunity for us to criticize him, or do we give him a free pass because he just won the World Series? Uh, I w- I'm not going to give him a free pass because he just won the World Series. I think finding we all thought to play shortstop is not a good idea. But I do think that maybe we should look back and say, you know what, Fabian's done more things right that he hasn't gotten credit for, and some of the things that he's done wrong have potentially been overblown. I know a lot of people hated the Edgar Renteria contract, but, you know, when you look at what Renteria produced, they lost a few million dollars over the course of a couple of years. It wasn't that big a deal, especially when you consider some of the uh, low-cost pickups like Aubrey House and Andres Torres, and, you know, they were more than able to compensate for the the overspendings with some pretty good low-cost pickups. And so, you know, I don't love Miguel Tejada at $7 million as a starting shortstop on a team that's trying to win. But at the same time, it's not the kind of contract that is going to destroy their uh, ability to contend. It's a it's a one-year deal for a guy who could be replaced if he struggles. And, you know, he was worth 1.3 wins last year. He was worth, I think, 2.5 the year before. If Tejada puts up a 1.5 win season and, you know, the going price for a win is $5 million, then $7 million is about right. And so I don't think that we can say that this is, you know, 
Barry Zito 2.0 or some other example of Brian Sabian gone insane. This is a slight overpay for an older player, which is basically Sabian's MO, and it hasn't ruined their franchise yet. I don't think that we should expect it to ruin it now. Now, with uh, with sort of strikeout heavy pitchers like you know like Tim Lincecum and Jonathan Sanchez, uh, Matt Cain, and uh, we'll see if you know Madison Bumgarner fits that description as well. I- is it possible that uh, playing uh, Miguel Tejada at shortstop? You know, might actually be a little bit less um, of a, um, you know, it might create a little bit less of a problem than than it would on a, you know, like a ground ball heavy team like the Cardinals or something like that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that if you're going to have a bad defensive team, uh, then you want a high strikeout pitching staff, and so the Giants can probably afford to punt defense a little bit more than some other teams. Uh, on the same hand, I think, you know. Are there better options than Miguel Tejada at shortstop? Maybe. I mean, this is not a great market to acquire shortstops, but there are some decent players out there. I think Ryan Terrio is a, a comparable player in terms of total value, and he's going to get $30 million in arbitration and cost a middle reliever to acquire and trade. So, you know, I, I just I don't necessarily see the need to spend $7 million on Miguel Tejada, but I, like, you, like you said, with a strikeout pitching staff, his big weakness will be somewhat minimized. Uh, the other problem is they're going to have to figure out if he can still hit. Because he is 36 and has lost most of his power. Yeah. Now, Joe Paul, uh, on, a, on a broader scale, what is what are sort of the rules that uh, you might have or we might consider for giving general managers breaks? Um, you know, Brian Sabian just won a World Series. You know, we can't we don't necessarily know if if the Giants were the best team. You know, they very likely weren't, but they won the World Series. And Brian Sabian has been the guy who's been at the helm of that franchise for some time. You know, do, do you have any sort of uh, broad guidelines to uh, to giving people breaks? Um, you know, even though we don't necessarily understand the moves they're making in the present. Well, I, I wouldn't say this is the correct way to look at it. Um, I think the correct way to look at it is look at every move individually and judge it in itself or in the context of the whole, and to not let things like championships uh, mess with your judgment because you can make a lot of bad moves that way. Um, but as an analyst and as a guy who comments on stories about baseball and moves on baseball, it's it's almost like I don't I don't want to comment on Sabian this off season or make any negative comments about his moves. I didn't want to analyze it until Miguel Tejada signing, you know, because I mildly disagreed with it. Uh, but it's it's almost like you don't want to do that because you're just gonna get you're just gonna get crapped on by everyone. <laughs> and it's not totally a bad thing. I mean, getting crapped on for the right reasons is okay, but you really never, you're never going to win an argument with anybody if you're if you're trying to say that someone who just won a, won a World Series made a bad move. Now, that's not to say you're wrong for saying it, but you're not going to gain any traction by saying that. So, so. you're saying your incentive, uh, your incentive as a as a baseball analyst and writer to criticize Brian Sabian at this point is minimal. It's been, it's, it, it might be right, and it might be the right thing to say, but the hassle is just not worth it. Okay. Have you considered criticizing Dayton Moore ever? Oh, I mean, of course we criticize Dayton Moore. <laughs> you know, I, it's funny. I criticize Dayton Moore a lot less than uh, than my colleagues do. Yeah. But, uh, you know, it doesn't mean you know, he shouldn't get, you know, and he shouldn't be, you know, he shouldn't be looked further down upon because teams have finished poorly uh, because we have to trust the process, Carson. Yeah, I know. Uh, we are trusting the process. And uh, we, we have one more step to go in the uh, process of this podcast. That was a segue. Yes. We've spent this podcast talking a lot about uh, off-season moves. Of course, uh, one of the places where traditionally, at least, a lot of those moves um, either occur or 
are sort of uh, invented uh, is the winter meetings. Now, to the best of my knowledge, um, both of you will be attending the, the winter meetings. I know it's a fact for you, Cameron. And is that also true for you, Joe Paul? I will be there. You will be there. Okay. So, uh, well, I wanna, I'm interested in two things, and I'd like to hear both your responses to this. Um, uh, one, what can we expect from these winter meetings in terms of, you know, is it going to be a very active time or will teams still be hesitant? And two, what do you sort of see as your role down there, reporting from it, maybe from a more, uh, you know, sabermetrically orthodox perspective, uh, and also, you know, as two guys who, um, you know, kind of uh, make their hay by writing on the internet, whereas eh, historically, at least, it's been a it's been a space for for beat reporters and maybe you know national sports reporters. Cameron, first, uh, you know, what's going to happen, and in what part are you going to play in the action? Yeah, I think it's going to be an interesting four days. I think uh, a lot of teams have kind of been sitting on their heels waiting for the winter meetings to start because, uh, you know, Cliff Lee and Carl Crawford are going to determine a lot of what other teams do. If if Cliff Lee doesn't go to the Yankees, I'm sure they've got plans B, C, and D lined up. I have no idea what those would be, but they've got to have some kind of alternate plan that they would put into place fairly quickly in order to make sure that they didn't have headlines in the New York Post calling them, you know, lazy bums for not doing anything and not getting any pitching. Um, so I think, you know, the Lee decision is going to be linchpin for at least several franchises Carl Crawford is uh, probably going to determine what the Angels and Red Sox do depending on where he signs there's a lot of teams that need their first piece to go off the board before they do some other things and so I think once one deal happens and that might take until Tuesday or Wednesday uh, we'll see a lot of stuff happen late and so my guess is the beginning of the meeting might be a little slow but the end should be pretty interesting uh, and then as for my role there, it's kind of an experiment, honestly. We're not really sh- totally 100% sure what we're going to do, but we're going to try some stuff. You know, uh, uh, we'll talk to people, we'll try and do some interviews, we'll uh, have some conversations with folks uh, from a different angle than the, you know, uh, how are you feeling when you made this trade kind of <laughs> talk. Uh, and we'll, you know, we'll maybe uh, have some interesting perspectives on things um, that, you know, a beat writer might not have. And so, you know, uh, I think that's why I put up the thread today on, uh, what people wanted to see is we really want to provide coverage that they would find interesting. We're not beat writers. We're not MLB trade rumors. Um, and so I don't think we want to go that direction, but I do think we want to do some interesting stuff, and um, the hope is that it goes well. Okay. Uh, Joe Paul, are, now are you going down, Joe Paul? Are, are you uh, as a member of Fangraphs, as a member of River Ave Blues, a combination of things? Well, I'm always a member of Fangraphs, of course. <laughs> I know that. Uh, yes. uh, we're, we're actually we're going down. We uh, This is the third year I'm going down. Um, and you know the first it's actually funny how it developed too um the first year it was on a whim um had just left his job and had a free winter and i work on my own schedule so we decided to say what the heck we're going to go down and give it a shot so we kind of started hey hey, hey, uh, joe ball this is a family program what the hey can we uh, (laughs) be careful yes uh sorry i'll censor myself thank you thank you uh, and so we just, you know, on a whim, he said, "All right, what, what's it going to take to go down there?" Um, so I called a few, I, I contacted a few people and saw what I had to do. I emailed the gentleman at MLB who handles the press credentials, and lo and behold, we got a press credential. Hmm. Uh, so then last year we went to do the same thing and were denied a press credential. Curious, um, and you were actually yeah, planning and, this time to go. Yeah. So, uh, but yes, yes came through. Uh, they are they've been super good to us. Uh, they came through the press pass, and they're doing the same this year. Oh, okay, cool. And what, what have you seen when you've been down there? Um, the first day is going to be incredibly slow. Uh, the first day is going to be a lot of people coming into the room, a lot of journalists basically saying, hey, I haven't seen you in a year. Um, and then everyone's sitting around twiddling their thumbs all day, basically. 
uh, both both years I've been there, nothing has happened the first day. The first night is when things start to heat up a little bit. And then, you know, even last year when it was a bit slower at the meetings, uh, you know, days two and three were, two and three were, they, they were pretty hectic. And that's, uh, I don't see any reason not to expect uh, the same this year, considering the names that are still on the board and who really, there's little, I don't see, you know, unless there's, they're still trying to drum up interest in other teams. Um, I can definitely see a, a lot of progress being made on Worth, Crawford, and Lee uh, in the next week. Yeah. Now, I, you know, I know that uh, you mentioned it being slow. I, um, I One Twitter feed I like to follow, or at least I like to follow during the GM meetings specifically, was Mike Silverman's. Uh, Forty minutes apart, he had two tweets uh, from the GM meetings. One said, uh, Ed Wade is now leaving to go for a jog. Uh, and 40 minutes later, it said, Ed Wade has returned from his jog. <laughs> Uh, I mean, is that a, is that when you're talking about the uh, the sort of the pace of things the first night? Is, is are those the most sorts of interesting things that are going down? No, it's, it is really, really almost nothing going down in the first day. It, it is really that slow. Is that things will pick up and you'll see like, in the second day. And uh, it, we, it, I wish we had like a live video feed that was in really fast motion, so you didn't have to sit through all the boring stuff. Yeah. Uh, but I wish we had like a feed where you could see how full the media room is on Monday. And then how it's much less full on Tuesday and Wednesday. Because people are out talking, is this the idea? Yeah, people, you know, actually doing stuff. What's the spread like uh, in terms of the food that's available in the media room? <laughs> I mean, is it good or what? Wait, 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 you're serious? Yeah, I, well, yeah. this is the sort of thing I they care don't about. Give us food? No, really? Uh, there was there's sometimes they have like a drink tray set up. Like what sort and of drink? You might be able to like pull a Pepsi off that or something. Yeah, that's not good. I mean, we're, we're we're in the middle of Disney. I mean, we're gonna, you know, they're going to make us pay for the super expensive food, right? And is drinking frowned upon while you're working? Uh, during well, yeah, no, during the day, I don't think I remember anyone uh, bringing alcoholic beverages into uh, into the meetings. But at night, all bets are off. All bets are off. Yeah. Well, that sounds all right. I don't know. Uh, but uh, now I understand, Karen McCrick, But if I'm wrong, we might. Uh, this is, of course, hypothetical, totally tentative, but we might try and get a uh, some correspondence uh, on the podcast here from uh, from Florida during the winter meetings. Is that? Can you, are we going to make that happen? Yeah, we're going to make that happen. We're gonna, we got some interesting stuff planned. We're going to do some live chats from the lobby where we'll be like uh, reporting on who Scott Boris is uh, currently extolling the virtues of Oliver Perez to. Uh, we'll be uh, doing some video stuff, some audio stuff. We'll do a podcast. We're gonna we're gonna really uh, try and make it obvious that we're there. Uh, th- well, that's great. Uh, I'm really excited for that, and uh, and uh, excited to see uh, what sort of stuff you come you come up with. Um, well, well, I guess we'll find out about that sooner than later. Um, let, let's let you guys get going, though. Uh, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, I think you guys are probably both disappointed that we weren't able to rope Matt Clausen into this particular uh, debate. Uh, on the plus side, the podcast is 50% shorter. Uh, only 50%? <laughs> uh, okay, very good. So, uh, f- uh, let's say goodbye to both of you. Uh, once again, from the American South, he has been our full-time employee, Dave Cameron. Thanks for joining us, Dave. Uh, thanks for having me, Carson. Okay, good. And also, uh, from the big, uh, from the biggest apple, at least in the United States, um, our beloved Polish friend, Joe Polakowski. Oh, our podcast was short today on River of Blue, so thanks for giving me the opportunity to fill my, uh, my daily pontification quota. Oh yeah, always, uh, always, and you didn't even have to bring out your slicing knife today. Not at all. For for Dave. Well, that's because Clausen wasn't here. Right. He uh, he's an angry, angry Mennonite fellow. <laughs> uh, okay, and uh, uh, so those have been uh, um, our uh, stalwart stalwart guests 
As always, and uh, as always, once again, I am Karsten Stooley, and this has been another White Hot edition of Fancrafts Audio.